So as you're turning to Ephesians 2, we'll be in verses 20 through 22. Hear now the reading of God's word. I'm actually going to start at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, as always, for giving us your word so that we can continue to hear your voice, that you continue to speak to your church uh, through your uh, revealed word, that you continue to convert people through its preaching, that you sanctify us through its preaching, that you convict us through it. Lord, we are thankful to be gathered here today, and we ask that your Spirit would be with us during this time. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So we are finishing up this chapter that has been Paul's preeminent chapter on the church. It's been, he's gone through showing us how Gentiles and Jews are reconciled together, the wall of hostility that existed between peoples is now torn down, and this continues no matter what people group. There is no longer any barrier to God's presence. It's been torn down, and that he's knit together a new being, a new people that are called holy, that are called to pursue him, and he's done all of this through his sacrificial death on the cross. And there's been a progression over the past few verses that we've gone through. And it kind of goes like this. In, in verse 19, we saw that we're no longer strangers and foreigners. We're, we're now citizens of the kingdom of God. And, and that, that's, a, that's one way that we get that much closer to God than we were ever before allowed to be. You know, before only Israelites were allowed to be citizens of the kingdom of God. And now God says it's for all people. And that's good. Citizens are good, but that's not enough intimacy. So God says, you're not just citizens, you're sons and daughters of my household. You're part of the family of God. And that's beyond wonderful, right? We are not just, uh, you know, citizens are great, but we're actually part of the king's family through Christ. I mean, that is beautiful and wonderful, but that's still not enough. And that's what we're here in these last two couple verses here is we're seeing that it's not just that we're part of God's we're citizens or that we're family members, but the church is actually the dwelling place of God's presence. You cannot get that more intimate than being united in that way, right? If you, you have children, you know, your children are still, they're part of you. You can see yourselves in them, but they're still distinct. They don't, they're not in you. But Paul's saying you, God dwells in the church. That's how close we are together. And it is God who builds this structure, this church. And the language here is so vivid and beautiful, uh, but it kind of reminds me to open as a way of illustration that the building metaphor of a structure of the temple is throughout all of Scripture. And one of the, the classic texts of this, and one of the classic texts of 
ecclesiology, the fancy word of you know, studying the theology of the church, it's actually divided you know, Catholics and Protestants for, for generations, but it's found in, in Matthew 16 when uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is you know, the Son of God, and it's this bold declaration. He's like the first disciple to kind of get it. All right, Jesus is not just a great prophet. He's not just some Messiah, leader, king. I mean, he, he's the Son of of the living God and Jesus seeing the, the faith, seeing that light bulbs are going off and Peter says, Peter's brain says to him, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Simon, but my father in heaven and upon you, I will build my church or upon this rock. And so Catholics have interpreted as Peter, Peter, I'm going to build my church around you. And so we're going to have a Pope and you're the, like the head apostle and that's not relevant to this sermon. But what is relevant, and what gets missed about this from a Catholic perspective is this. It, the emphasis is not on Peter and you know, whether or not he's gonna be a leader. It's on who is building the church. He doesn't say, Peter, you're gonna build it. Jesus says, I'm building the church. It might be on your confession. That might be the entryway in, but I'm the one who builds it. So the sermon was brilliantly and imaginatively titled, God the Builder. And there are three points that I want to go over here. It is that God builds, God grows, and God dwells. So let's look first at how God builds his church. In the beginning of verse 20, it says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. God lays the foundation structure of the church. I've never had to build a home, um, but my father-in-law and my brother-in-law have both built homes, and apparently they have told me the foundation is like really important. You lay down this massive slab of concrete. You got to make sure it's all squared off. Even, I mean, it has to be exact. The foundation keeps the rest of the structure you know, supported. It's, it, you build on top of it, and so it's got to be able to handle however high you're going to go, and it, all those things are to be taken in consideration before it's even laid out. And so what Paul is saying here is our foundation as the church, as the structure that God is building, is the apostles and the prophets. Now there's a bunch of, if you were to read this, and maybe you did when you heard me read it earlier, if you were to read this, I would totally understand if you think the prophets is referring to the Old Testament prophets because that would make sense. But a lot of scholars actually have bickered over this. Earlier interpreters, like the early church up and even to the time of Calvin, interpreted as this referring to Old Testament prophets. More uh, contemporary scholars that are, are good evangelical reformed scholars um, view this as actually referring to the New Testament prophets. And so why is that important? Why is Paul emphasizing the apostles and the prophets. Well, remember, the, the apostolic office is unique. We don't have apostles today. There was 12, and that's it. And we know that's it because when we get a vivid picture of the coming kingdom of God in Revelation, we are told that there are going to be these 12 pillars or gates for each apostle, representing each apostle. There's no other. There's not a 13th, a 14th. It's 12. 
the apostles were tasked with spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were tasked with overseeing, laying down the groundwork of what would become the church, build it up, but their office was so unique in history, so privileged, that we don't say anybody else is a modern-day apostle. That office served a purpose and has now ended. Just like a foundation serves that initial purpose of laying everything out and then you move on from it, you build on top of it. And so this actually works with the prophetic office here as well. So when you read your New Testament, you do hear references to prophets. This comes up in the book of Acts a lot. It comes up uh, in church history as well, mentioning early uh, prophets. When the New Testament is being written, though, and when Paul's writing Ephesians, I mean, at one point, Ephesians was a first edition, right? The, the community got it for the very first time. And so there's this kind of gap between the Old Testament had been written and canonized, and that's what we were reading and studying and praying and learning. But the New Testament at the early church, it was fresh. First edition John, first edition Romans. And in the time between that, the prophetic office still held a purpose. It still held the purpose of revealing God's will to the early church, of encouraging the saints. That's why Paul's talking about the prophetic office to the church in Corinthians because they still needed to hear a word from the Lord. And we also know that they're, they're not predicting futures. They're not fortune tellers. They're not, um, well, actually, some of them were money grabbers and some used the office to get money. But for the most part, they continued to do what the prophets of the Old Testament did. And that was speak the word of God to the people of God. But that office too is gone. We do not have modern day prophets who are getting revelation from somewhere else other than scripture. We have the final word of God. If you want to hear God's word in your life, read your Bible. If you want to hear from him audibly, read your Bible out loud. That is the way we continue to hear from him. So that's the, the groundwork. And it's more than just the offices, right? It's not just the men that built this, that laid down the foundation. It's their teaching. It's what they left to the church. It's the fact that Paul wrote so many letters, that he taught us so much about justification, sanctification, the church, the Holy Spirit. It's about Peter's testimony to us in his epistles of how to survive the world as a Christian. It's James reminding us that as much as we have been saved by grace through faith, our faith is a faith that's never alone. We are called to serve. We are called to love. We are called to not be partial to, to the rich or to the poor. We're supposed to treat people according to the law. All of this is doctrine. It's right teaching, right beliefs of what the Christian life entails, how to live it out. And doctrine is important. That's, that's one of the foundational points of this. This is one of the reasons why we have confessions of faith and catechisms. It instructs us in the faith. And in today's Christian church, some people don't really care about it. They don't understand why they should. I was actually listening to a podcast about this. Uh, it got brought up as a side note, but we were, it was discussing some controversies within our own denomination from a couple of decades ago. And the person being interviewed said part of the reason it the controversy wasn't understood by so many people was it just seemed so theologically complex that people just tuned out they didn't they weren't sure it mattered so much if it got that abstract but 
everyone is a theologian. R.C. Sproul said that and wrote a book, I think, actually, with that title in it. Every single one of us. And the simplest way to, to do this, right, when you meet somebody who says, I have Jesus, I don't need to get worried about doctrine. I don't need to figure out exactly like all these, you know, these big systematic theologies or even those little confessions. I don't really need them because I just have Jesus. Because it sounds really pious. It sounds very sincere sometimes. The really good way to stress very quickly about how everyone is a theologian and how doctrine matters is once they say that, all I need is Jesus. Ask them to say, ask them this question, who is Jesus? Whatever they say next is theology. If you are going to define who Jesus is, those are theological statements. Even if you're taking scripture and saying, oh, he's the living son of God, he's the lamb of God, he's the second... All of those things, that, that's theology. You are building words about God. You have to do theology in the Christian life. And the foundation for the church is this teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And so as God builds the church, though, he's always got to highlight one person. If he's going to do something, he is always going to highlight one person who does it all. And it is the Sunday school answer. It is Jesus. And, he, and Paul says here in the second part of 20, he says that built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and prophets. God builds it because God called the apostles and he gives revelation to the prophets. But the cornerstone, the most important part of the foundation that's reserved for Christ alone. And God wants that seen. He wants that magnified. He wants to make a big deal about his son because it is only through his son that his church can be built. Because it's only through his son that any of us get to be part of it. And the cornerstone is a very unique word. Paul didn't make this one up. He's done that a few times in Ephesians, but he didn't do it this time. But the, the cornerstone can be one or two things. And remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have the concretes of today, right? And so the, the foundations, as they were being built, the cornerstone could be one of two things. But, and they both work to highlight Jesus. The first way is the cornerstone could be the final perfect angle of the foundation stones. You, you place it in there. And sometimes you'll still see this actually in church buildings, right? I'm, I don't know if we have one. But you'll see at a church building, you know, at one particular angle of the church, there's that one stone. It'll say, you know, Marian Presbyterian, founded 1834, or whatever your church is, whatever year it was founded, and it'll be put there ceremonially to make a big deal that this is the bedrock of the church. The other way a cornerstone works, though, is it could be the highest point, a, a focal point that draws your attention upward, that catches your eye. It could be extremely ornate. The rest of the walls and structures could be built kind of hanging on it, dependent upon it. And that's another way that Paul could be using cornerstone here. But either way works because either way points to the fact that the cornerstone is Christ. And he says himself, the Greek has that word in there. It's to emphasize Christ's work for us. It's to emphasize that he is the most important part, that he keeps it all together. During the, the Christmas holidays uh, this past year with just all the chaos that Christmas can bring around, especially I've got younger kids, as you all know, and 
they've got things. I don't understand why schools are so cruel, but I, I'm busy enough with church and work and other things. They've got concerts, they've got recitals, they've got all this stuff. And we're running around crazy. And Amanda just kept perfect task and track of where everything was going. And she's, she started to jokingly say, I hold it all together. I'm holding Christmas and the holidays and this family sane. And that's what Christ does. He holds us together. He keeps us. We don't have, last night at Jumpstart, one of the speakers uh, said this. I thought it was just so brilliant and so perfect about what the church is as a building and as the people of God. He said, none of us have any business being together. And he was referring to the people at, at that church. But as I looked around, he, he was right. He was an African-American man from the South. The majority of the people were white people from the South. There were several people there that I know God has blessed with abundance financially. I know there are people in that room who God has not blessed financially. I know people in that room who have suffered trauma and sickness and heartache and terrible, and others too young to even experience terrible things yet. We have no business being together. The thing that holds us together is that cornerstone. It's Christ. That's what makes the church beautiful is because it brings all those different people who the world says you have no business being together. We do because we have that confession. We have that cornerstone, that beautiful Savior who died on a cross to keep us and unite us through all our sins to forgive us and say, I'm going to make something glorious out of all of you. And it's going to be focused on me. So that's how Christ builds us up. That's how God builds his church. But then he says, Paul says something weird. And I, and I do mean weird because buildings don't grow. Buildings are built. There's not just, you know, buildings don't just pop up and start sporadically reproducing. But Paul says here in verse 21, in whom, that's in Christ, the whole structure that he's building is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. How, how does, who builds the church? We saw that the person that builds the church is God. We see that it is him that has built the foundation, or has laid the foundation. He puts the cornerstone as Christ. So how does it, how does it grow? Who fits in the church? And we have to get back into an ancient worldview with this because we're used to brick structures. We're used to wood structures. If you've ever been to the Middle East or gone, had gone to go to Israel, there's not a lot of bricks. There's not a lot of wood. It's all stone. And when you walk around the, the temple, the second temple, the remains of it, I mean, they're huge stones, and, and they look, from afar, they look like they're uniform. But as you get closer, you notice there's, there's a little chipping. Some, some angles might be a little, little off, but they all fit perfectly at one point into building the second temple. Who, who makes the stones? Who is growing this church? How do we all come together? The pieces come together together. And we're, we're made to fit because God chooses each stone. You're the stones. God chooses each of you. And when masons in the ancient world are getting these rocks together, you can imagine they go to a quarry and they pick up a rock and they're looking at it and some are going to get passed over. 
But then he's going to find one. He's like, you're going to do. I'm going to make something out of you. You're going to fit my purpose. But the stone is still a little rough. So God has to go. The mason has to go. And he sands off parts here. He chips away some hard surfaces here. He gets you and forms you and shapes this stone till it fits his purposes. And then he places you where you need to go. And he builds up the church that way. We are not precious. We are not beautiful. We are not shiny until the builder comes and picks us up and makes us blessed, beautiful, shiny. And then the, even the way we shine, it says it's not just because he's already shaped us into something, but then when we're placed into that building, remember what's holding us up? It's Christ. It's that cornerstone. As you can think of it as like a sun rising up, hitting the cornerstone. It's beautiful. It's ornate. and It's shining and reflecting. And everything that cornerstone's light touches becomes beautiful and bright and shines forth its own glory and light to everything else around it. That's what he has done. That's how the church grows in that way is God himself picks out the stones. God has us each picked out, shapes us, forms us up, and builds us up. And then he places us where he wants us. And then finally, he dwells in the structure he's built. And this is probably the most important part, that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in the church. It means that we have God's presence, and his presence means that we have, there's holiness. Where his presence is, there's power. Where his presence is, there's mission. And we see this throughout the scriptures. A lot of interpreters, a lot of theologians have rightly pointed out that Eden is the first temple. God had created a garden, and then he dwells there. And it talks about when he's looking for Adam, the heartbreaking thing is God is walking through, searching him out. He had created a temple where he would be with his people. But the first real explicit indication we get of this is at the very end of Exodus. If you remember, first part of Exodus is all action, right? I mean, captivity in Egypt, freedom, complaining, uh, wandering, Sinai. And then from like Exodus 22 to the end, laws, uh, blueprints to build the tabernacle. We start talking about sewing the garments. It gets real detailed real fast, but at the end of it, it ends a little bit again with some narrative, and it ends beautifully, because as God has given Moses this blueprint for the tabernacle, and telling him exactly how he, God wants the tabernacle built, it ends with the glory of God descending on the tabernacle, descending on the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. God's presence is now with the people. And as the narrative goes on in, in Leviticus and Numbers, whenever the Spirit of God comes. Great clouds come down. I mean, his presence was visible to his people and to the rest of the world. And then as we come into the time of the kings, Solomon is tasked with building the temple. And when Solomon has built the temple, again, to God's specifications, it's God who gives him the plans to build it. Once he's finished building it in 1 Kings 8, once again, the Spirit of God comes down clouds, fires, rumblings, holiness comes and dwells with the people of Israel. 
and then the church experienced this in Acts 2. The, the, the beauty of God coming down in the church is the Holy Spirit descending. And the powerful thing there now is as the Spirit descends and they come, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues of all the nations. So that the holiness of God, the presence, the power of it, is now just not residing in, in one place with one people with one tongue. But it's going to be going out into every tongue, into every language, all across the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're reminded that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then again in Revelation, the very, almost the second to last chapter, the Revelation 21, verse 3, it says, A loud voice comes out saying, The dwelling place of God is with man. The new Jerusalem will have God dwell in it with his creation. We were meant as redeemed people, as a redeemed church, to have God dwell with us, to sanctify us, to make us distinct from the world, but to empower us then to be on mission, declaring his glory, declaring about his redemption in our lives, declaring the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it's only when, as we as the church are built this way, when we're built in holiness, when we're built with a focus on being the, the presence and the dwelling place of God, that we can rightly minister. What we've gotten too far obsessed with monetary gain, with big numbers, with obsessing with how much we're going to grow numerically, how much we're going to grow the church coffers, how much we materially gain. That's why when you, you're, when you see things like on YouTube or something of some mega church, you, you don't even know what you're looking at because it doesn't seem holy. It seems like the world with a bit of spin of Jesus on it. There's concerts, there's smoke machines, it's all black. It's, I don't know who's being worshipped in those places, but I'm not sure it's Jesus. The only, I read this in preparation for the sermon, only when the church can say that silver and gold have I none, can she say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. We have all the gold and all the silver and all the pomp now. But we cannot say, rise up as a church. We've exchanged, exchanged spiritual beauties for material gains. We've ex exchanged the maturity the gospel can bring us, the maturity of growing in grace and faith and holiness for numbers and influence. We want relevance today, but not revival of people being saved from sin and death. And so I'll conclude with this because y'all were on my mind with and most churches in our presbytery we're no longer very numerous the majority of churches in our presbytery are no longer very numerous but our little local temple is still glorious it's glorious because you all still come this place to sing praises to a holy God. God still dwells with you. You still hear the word of God preached. You still love one another, but you've also sent out so many people. And that's what part of the temple of God is supposed to do. We come to worship and then we're sent out on mission. Since I've been pastor here, and it's in my bio or it comes up someplace, I have met so many men who have told me 
that they know about Marian Presbyterian Church. Some because uh, one guy that I'm friends with through a, a group of like-minded pastors, when he saw that I was the pastor here, emailed me privately and said, I preached my licensure sermon at Marian Presbyterian Church. I loved it. Uh, John Fender, who was a pastor here for several years, several years ago now, we got his picture up in the historical center, uh, when I became, uh, joined something and he saw that I was from Marian Presbyterian, he friend requested me on Facebook and sent me a message. I was the pastor at Marian Presbyterian Church back in the early 2000s, early 90s. I loved those saints there. I'm so happy that the church is there and, and that you're the pastor. Chandler Rowland, who served here for, uh, as pulpit supply for several months, a couple years back, he's at RUF, but he still talks about Marian Presbyterian Church. He's at RUF in Carson Newman. The the blessing that the temple has sent out to the church is glorious. We may not be numerically great, but the, but the offspring, the people that God has blessed through this church is amazing. And that's what we can still experience. We can experience the presence of God when we gather together, and that is glorious. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you build the church and not us, because we do a terrible job. The lines would be off. We'd pick the wrong stones. We'd not know what we're doing, and we'd build it all a mess. Thank you that we're not the builders. Thank you that we're here, the, the, the stones that you've picked. Thank you that you are the one that has shaped us and fit us. Lord, may we rest in that, that you're the one that chose us. You're the one that's refining us. You're the one that's sanctifying us. And Father, may we learn and continue to grow in what it means to be part of this church, what it means to be part of the building and the temple of God. We are grateful beyond measure that your spirit dwells within us. May that empower us to preach boldly your son in the places that you've called us to be. And may we go forth today shining brightly because the cornerstone of this temple shines bright on us. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.